From the first days of his papacy, wise commentators have pointed out that Francis is neither a conservative nor progressive, to use as unhelpful but pervasive categories. Rather, he's a radical who returns to the roots, radix. The point of returning to the roots, of course, is not to bury oneself deep in the ground and be forgotten, but to grow afresh. It's not to recreate the first flower, but to reappropriate the original vital principle and nourishment. As the Venezuelan theologian Rafael Luciano says, synodality requires theological, cultural recreation of the foundational spirit that led to the church's original foundation. It's this dynamic sense of recovering a foundational spirit um, employed in an emergent, if somewhat unpredictable, process under the Pope that made me think of Francis's approach to transformative ecclesial renewal, in particular with regard to synodality, as a form of rewilding the church. Not, as a colleague suggested, um, because the synodal pathway painstakingly cleared by churches uh, is immediately overgrown by weeds and briars <laughs> of distorted human and ecclesial nature, but because rewilding is concerned with re-establishing not the past and the forms that came in the past, but the conditions for processes and diversity to emerge. You can see some of this in uh, a recent book on rewilding. It talks about not returning to an arbitrary past baseline, but rather acknowledging new forms that evoke the past, but will be different. And it's rather a nice uh, description of the development of tradition. I'm going to be using this stimulus of the idea of rewilding, not as a detailed allegory for synodality, but more in terms of a provocation by putting two dissimilar universes of meaning together, as in metaphorical theory, or what social scientists call a conceptual resource intended to generate new insights. We'll have three main parts, each focusing on some aspect of synodality um, in a way that looks at some of the ecclesiological issues as well as the ecclesial issues of implementation uh, and put those alongside some potentially creative provocations from rewilding. First, to consider the significance of process and dynamic in the incremental but significant shift from existing communion ecclesiologies to an ecclesiology in which synodality is considered to be constitutive. Secondly, exploring some perspectives on the laity as part of the whole people of God. And finally, outlining some issues involved in re-establishing this foundational ecclesial spirit in um, a diverse church of churches, and perhaps better, a community of communities. I should say now I will probably be asking more questions than giving answers in this. I should perhaps also mention at the start um, Steve Acethorpe's 2012 book, also called Rewilding the Church, which I frustratingly came across two months after giving this title for the talk. Um, there's some similarities in what Acethorpe does in taking the rewilding image and applying it to ecclesiology, um, but he does it from a very different perspective and it's quite a different kind of book, so it doesn't really influence either the title or content of what I'm going to say. Hopefully this won't be too heavy after the day we've had. Um, lots of stimulating conversations all through the day. And, uh, and we can have a, a good, lively conversation later on.
in the sense that we're now coming to understand it. Synodality is a surprisingly recent idea. It's a term which only appears uh, once in Francis's 2013 Manifesto Evangelii Gaudium, and that's in the context of ecumenism. Although the underlying principles, I think, are, are nascent and can be found there. It appears again in a homily for St. Peter and Paul in 2013, and again, the context is the relationship of bishops to each other. As with much of the literature before 2015, synodality seems to mainly involve collegiality among Catholic bishops and ecumenical relationships with non-Catholic bishops. In the 2018 paper um, by the International Theological Commission on Synodality in the Life and Mission of the Church, it's called, called synodality and the word, uh, verb uh, adjective synodal, a linguistic novelty in the Catholic Church, um, coming as a development of doctrine in the magisterium and in the lived experience of the Church, which requires us, as the receivers of that doctrine, to cross a threshold of understanding. At the same time, it spends quite a lot of its uh, length showing how it is present or at least prefigured in the early church and as part of the later tradition both in East and West, as well as being a fresh reception of the Second Vatican Council's ecclesiology of the people of God, something we've heard quite a lot of comments about today. So maybe the real new departure in these rewilding terms, at least for the Church of the Global North, is Francis's approach, which is indeed multidisciplinary, holistic, rather than linear. You see, for example, the diversity of sources he uses in Evangelii Gaudium, including bishops' conferences uh, from around the world. In one of the first theological assessments of uh, Francis's thinking, I emphasise theological assessments, and Walter Casper described Francis's approach as transversal, wanting to bring in multiple perspectives to get towards truth. Allied to this is the priority Francis gives, I think this is key, to initiating processes rather than occupying spaces. You might recognise this from his first principle uh, for redeeming society that he gives in Evangelii Gaudium. Time is greater than space. For many of us, that might be the first time we saw that, although it can be traced back to 1974 when he gives his first uh, paper on that topic. So here is a, is a first intimation of disruptive synodality as a kind of rewilding. It's a departure from approaching ecclesiology as a closed system. It's orientated towards the future. In many ways, this might be the most disruptive aspect of Francis's approach to ecclesial transformation, seeing value in dialectical tension, even conflict, prioritising the question rather than coming with a ready-made answer, and paying attention to reality rather than ideologies. And Francis uses ideology not always in a pejorative sense. It's anything that prioritises the idea over reality. <coughs> in this, there is a kind of resonance with uh, some systems thinking that informs rewilding. And the commitment to open systems of thinking that we find in some doctrinal hermeneutics, for example, the Anglican uh, Anthony Thistleton, or in the post-foundationalist reconfiguring of doctrinal and practical webs, found in Paul Murray's work here at Durham. So the key words that really resonate there are a focus on openness to understanding systems, a willingness to pragmatically engage with them, and to think in terms of the logic of emergence, 
you get the conditions right, rather than focusing on the end result, then the ends start to emerge from it. Well, it's also bearing in mind that there's always a degree of risk and uncertainty involved in this approach. Such open processes, nevertheless, require concrete space in which to be realised. In this regard, the ITC usefully distinguishes three levels of synodality. The synods themselves. Secondly, synodal processes and structures. And thirdly, synodal style. And it views those in increasing order of importance, that sin is less important than the style of synodality in the church. Focusing initially on the first of these actual synods, Francis's synods as Pope uh, offer quite an interesting perspective on this emerging paradigm of synodality. At the 2001 Synod of Bishops on the subject of the bishop, servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the hope of the world, during which a discussion uh, on the need for Episcopal collegiality was pushed aside, Pope Francis experienced the increasingly centralised control of synods in terms of participants and the outputs of those synods exercised by the Pope and the Curia at the time. Controversial interventions being sidelined or just suppressed in the official record. But since 2012, I say that guardedly, He's brought a new process and a new style, beginning with the Synod on the New Evangelization. Now, before anyone corrects me, I know this was Benedict's Synod, but it was Francis's legacy, because it's out of that Synod on the New Evangelization that in 2013 he published Evangelii Gaudium as the post-Synodal exhortation, taking evangelization as a starting point for a very wide-ranging manifesto uh, of the joy of the gospel. How this idea might be realised in the Synod of Bishops itself starts to become clearer at one of the next synods in 2014-15, to 15, the, the two synods on the family. In many ways what happens there is a prototype of what's going on in the synodal process at the moment, <clears throat> both in terms of the preparation and in the synod hall itself. Because the synod took place in two sessions, it's possible to see something of the development of a synodal method by comparing the preparation for each of those sessions. Some of you might remember the questionnaire associated with the 2014-15 synods, uh, not originally intended for distribution to the faithful, not originally intended for distribution to priests. Um, but it took its own course, starting in Germany, and ended up being widely distributed in some countries. And that, although there's a sense that that consultation, uh, something was better than nothing, there was justifiable criticism about the technical, very churchy language that was used in the questionnaire. But you can use it to see the development between the two sessions of the Synod, which took place over two years. The preparatory work for that 2014 Synod started out, I would say, with a priority of the answer. For example, there are questions on how well is natural law understood? How can the birth rate be increased in your diocese? <laughs> fitting the lived experience of the faithful into an existing framework um, in, in something that almost echoes the turnaround at Vatican II from De Ecclesia to Lumen Gentium. The, the opening uh, section of the, of the 2013 preparatory work was the diffusion of the teaching of the family in sacred scripture and the church's magisterium, followed by marriage according to the natural law. In contrast, just a year later in the preparation for 2015, 
there's a priority shifted towards the questions which arise following a see, judge, act method, listening, looking at Christ, confronting the situation. The language develops too. Separated, divorced and single parent families are no longer referred to as irregular, but wounded. If they're mentioned as irregular at all, it's in quotation marks and prefixed so-called. Rather than problematising the response of the faithful as inadequate catechesis, the recurring question in the 2015 preparation is, how can the church make the gospel more attractive? How can it accompany those who are struggling? In the Synod Hall, Francis encouraged Parasea, courageous speaking, told bishops not to be afraid of disagreeing. At the same time, he insisted on true discernment and a chance for learning. As has recently been re-emphasised, the Synod is a spiritual process, not to be reduced to parliamentary debate. Now, the conclusion of that Synod in 2014-15 coincided with the 50th anniversary of the Synod of Bishops as an institution. And Francis took the opportunity to recognise it as a fruit of the Second Vatican Council, intended so that Pope and bishops are able to better provide pastoral care and governance of the Church. That's Paul's sixth words. He also drew attention to how it remained unfinished business. In 2013, he called the Synod of Bishops as an institution half-baked. Not, not necessarily taking a swipe at it, but saying it's not finished, it's not done yet. Now, none of this is particularly exceptional. A reform of the Synod was long considered overdue. Episcopal collegiality in the Catholic Church was regularly referred to in the theological literature as effective, but never effective. But what could have been a, um, a rather conventional commemoration has become an essential reference point for understanding his synodal vision showing how the focus was shifting from a synodality as the application of episcopal collegiality to something much more comprehensive. After noting the etymology of synod, he went on to give what has become the classic description of a synodal church, one which listens, one which learns, and one which involves the Holy Spirit. But significantly, he also expanded the hermeneutical horizon for understanding the Synod of Bishops and the Episcopacy itself, by clearly distinguishing collegiality and synodality, situating the former within the frame of the latter, mirroring the priority given to the people of God in Lumen Gentium. In a synodal church, Francis says, the Synod of Bishops is only the most evident manifestation of a dynamism of communion which inspires all ecclesial decisions an expression of Episcopal collegiality within an entirely synodal church. In case the readers haven't got that, he then re-emphasises it. Two different phrases, Episcopal collegiality and an entirely synodal church. We have the message from this. Now, Raphael Luciani really neatly summarises this development, I think, as a movement from the conciliar understanding of Episcopal collegiality to a new understanding, which we see in Francis's early synods, of the uh, practice of Episcopal synodality. And he goes on to say that what the church is now working through is a further conversion to a synodal ecclesiality. By the time of the 2018 synod on young people and vocational discernment, 
this synodal ecclesiality is starting to come to the fore explicitly. Sister Natalie Beckhardt, who is Undersecretary of the Present Synod, is the first woman to hold that role, has highlighted that the post-synodal exhortation picks out important issues about the full participation of women in a synodal church, especially their, quote, presence in ecclesial bodies and their participation in decision-making. Recently, she's gone on to develop some of this to challenge prevailing ecclesial attitudes on, quote, feminine genius, arguing that it's not possible to say women are like this, men are like that, so women can bring this to the church. Rather, the challenge is to be the church with women and men together. She presents synodality, therefore, as a path of reconciliation, not only between clergy and laity, but between women and men. Finally, in the 2019 Synod on the Amazon, um, emphasised that the synodal church needs to hear the cry of the poor and the cry of the earth, as many of you will know. But it also gave an example of one of the challenges of this approach, this disruptive approach. Uh, the media, as you know, largely focused on one issue, possibility of married priests, vera probati, which the synod had discussed and in fact recommended, but which Francis did not endorse. Uh, Brad Hinsey, professor at Fordham University and author of an important book on dialogue in the Catholic Church, criticised Francis in an essay for this apparently for not hearing the voice of the synod in this matter. It's just a resurgence of uh, papal authoritarianism. Is it just a lack of courage? What's going on? A generous reading might say that the Pope was making two important points. Firstly, by distinguishing between debate, even with a majority assent, and discernment led by the Spirit. And secondly, perhaps less obviously, a concern that the hot-button topics of the global north should not obscure a more holistic set of regional issues. Recently, Father Felix Wilfred, priest theologian in India, uh, who was on the International Theological Commission, has written on the Sidon, made a powerful plea for the churches of the global north to discuss climate change and poverty with the same passion they bring to issues of gender and sexuality. Whether... Hinsey is right, or whether that more generous reading is, is uh, correct, it highlights some of the challenges of implementing this kind of synodal process. This brings us to the current synodal process, the so-called synod on synodality, which is clearly not simply a synod on how do you hold a synod. The official title, although I do think some of the bishops who commented that we don't need to learn how to hold a synod haven't read the stuff we've just gone through. Um, the official title is For a Synodal Church. So it's clearly about the emergence of a synodal ecclesiality. Both Luciani and, and Beckhardt see it as an ecclesiogenesis, an emergence of a transformed church in which we are being encouraged to make a new leap from a collegial we to an ecclesial we. Ecclesiogenesis is, of course, something of a loaded term in Catholic discourse, uh, emerging in 75 with the gathering of base ecclesial communities and becoming more widely known through Leonardo's Boff, uh, in 19, Boff, Boff's book in 1986, Ecclesiogenesis, the base communities reinvent the church. Without taking that book as a, a blueprint, I think it is significant that the, the notion of ecclesiogenesis that's now being used in regard to synodality historically is linked with base ecclesial communities. I'll come back to that later. But the key point here 
is that synodality represents a real development with potentially far-reaching ecclesial and ecclesiological consequences. Um, so part of Francis's comment on the newness of what the church is going through at the moment, uh, again, drawing on the idea that authentic evangelization is always new. Ecclesiogenesis, the emergence of a new church, might also be seen as a matter of ecclesial conversion or even institutional reformation. The Latin American experience recognised that such synodal conversion requires first pastoral conversion, going to and learning from the peripheries, but following through with changes to structures and practices based on experience, listening and reflection. As the International Theological Commission acknowledges, pastoral conversion for the implementation of synodality means that some paradigms still present in ecclesial culture need to be quashed. It goes on to give quite a long list, which I won't list to you, um, but they're all basically clericalism. Such pastoral conversion points to a synodal church as a whole church, um, and to the second of the ITC's levels of synodality, structures and processes for synods. And here we might just look at a second provocation from rewilding. Now, um, many of you will probably be familiar with exercises in rewilding that focus on apex predators like wolves or lions, the so-called cores, corridors and carnivores approach. Without rejecting that top-down focus, recent efforts in this field have also emphasised the key role of large herbivores in maintaining ecosystem quality and diversity. Carnivores often sit atop simple food pyramids, but in other perspectives, such as, quotes, complex cascading effects via grazing and production, the apex is occupied by large herbivores. Some, like beavers, have such a significant impact on modifying their environment, they're called ecosystem engineers. The herbivores are thus numerous, shape the world around them, and have been somewhat ignored. Now, I don't want to go too far down the path of identifying the laity as grazing herbivores in the church. <laughs> Notwithstanding Francis's emphasis on having the smell of the sheep and wise pastors knowing when to lead and when to follow, the shadow of the Pian division of the church into a teaching church of pastors and a taught church of laity, whose one rule is to docilely follow, still looms large. But as Francis points out in Evangelii Gaudium, Lay people are, simply put, the vast majority of the people of God. The minority, ordained ministers, are at their service. Lay people's role is by no means passive, nor is it to fill gaps left by a shortage of priests, but involves a wide range of ministries in the world and in the church, the potential of which Evangelii Gaudium sees as being limited by the lack of suitable formation and by not being given opportunities to take part in decision-making in their local church. It's interesting that decision-making comes out so early on in the thinking. And one of the most pervasive images arising from this is that of an inversion of the ecclesial pyramid on the basis of ministerial service, as a phrase Francis regularly uses. This is important, and it has real pastoral consequences. And you can see, for example, Pope Francis's reordering of the curia 
as an instrument to support the needs of local churches rather than as a distribution channel for papal strategy pushing down. It's also been fruitfully developed by theologians like Ormond Rush, who use the inverted pyramid as a way of reflecting on the role of the census fide in a synodal church. But to say the pyramid is inverted maybe doesn't go far enough. The pyramid itself still remains. Um, you might think about the example that I, I met recently, talking to, to some people in the diocese, about the rather ambiguous sign offered by the washing of the feet on Holy Thursday um, by a priest or a bishop. What was intended to offer a sign of humility has become, in the lived experience of some clergy and some people, a kind of liturgical virtue signalling, which has lost or reversed its sign value. And that's not a reflection on the people doing it. It's the, um, the sign system in which that sign is situated. It, it doesn't always work anymore. But as I've just indicated from the, the rewilding perspective, there are other ways of thinking about relations between organisms in an ecosystem than a simple pyramid. Um, can complicate the traditional pyramidal representation and think instead of interacting trophic webs, cascading effects through the network. Rather than thinking in terms of an inverted pyramid then, swapping one foundationalist model for another, the question might become how do these different organisms, individuals, and webs, communities of the church, interact? Might this image challenge us to think in more dynamic and complex terms of relationships? After all, the challenge of re-receiving Vatican II in this regard is not to exalt the laity or denigrate the orders, but to situate everybody in the whole people of God. We might think about the ITC's second level of synodality of structures and processes then in this light. Um, how can those processes and structures make the participation of the whole faithful, not just the laity, not just the ordained, possible? The Commission says that this cannot simply be a matter of reusing what is already there, but must integrate and update the heritage of the ancient ordering of the Church um, by means of the structures inspired by Vatican II and open to the creation of new structures. This applies not just to Episcopal and diocesan synods, while Pope Francis does not directly contradict Benedict XVI's negative assessment of the theological value of Episcopal conferences, Francis does quote extensively from regional and national conferences in his magisterial teaching, and in doing so reopens interesting questions which have implications for canon law and enculturated diversity. But when the ITC talks about permanent structures for involving the laity, um, beyond occasional diocesan synods, the suggestions are limited to the existing provisions for diocesan pastoral councils, parish pastoral councils and parish finance councils. Now, it's encouraging to hear Francis say when he was addressing um, pastoral workers in Italy how needed pastoral councils are. A bishop cannot guide a diocese without a pastoral council. A parish priest cannot guide a parish without a pastoral council, parish council. This is fundamental, exclamation mark. But that can't be the limit of what is possible. In particular, there is on the one hand a need to find ways of practising synodality for those who don't do committees. And on the other way, more theologically, 
How do we inculcate the spiritual and ecclesial values of synodality into those low-level structures like parish councils? So they have an ecclesial and missional pastoral function and not merely an administrative one. Raphael Luciani makes an intriguing suggestion here that as well as diocesan councils, which are part of the structure and come under the governance of the bishop, uh, a trophic web of canonical structure, if you like, there might be other synodal bodies created in a local church that are ecclesial rather than episcopal in nature, bodies where the clergy and laity meet simply as the people of God, where the bishop turns up present by his primary ordination, not as bishop, but simply as a baptised Christian, recalling all Augustine's dialectic of being both for the faithful as a bishop and simply with them as a Christian. Moving beyond the diocese, what would that look like for the Catholic Church at a national level? In England and Wales, it's the Bishop's Conference which represents the Church at the national level. The Catholic Bishop's Conference from England and Wales website proudly has the banner, The Catholic Church in England and Wales. Would a synodal ecclesiology start raising questions about whether they ought not to be some kind of national entity of the Catholic Church in England and Wales, not only as a decision-making body, which is where much of the focus of synodality has been, but as an evangelistic sign that the whole people of God is the Church, served by the Bishop's Conference. Any new and revitalised structures, these or others, need to facilitate communicative dynamics in a synodal church. They need to allow us not only to listen and learn, um, not only to listen, but to learn, translate, adapt, perform speech acts, tell stories, ask questions, um, just as they need to be involving people in decisions and proposals. Synod is not just about walking together in its history and its derivation, but about being called together as an assembly for a purpose. So too, a synodal church is not just about listening to each other and walking with each other, but co-responsible decision-making, and structures and processes need to recognise that. Eamon Duffy says that the Catholic Church is a conversation with many dimensions. As a historian, of course, he's, he's thinking figuratively. Um, you know, the conversations we have through time and space with the whole tradition. But I think that observation is true literally as well for a synodal church. Uh, I'd just like to mention three possible research areas that the communicative dynamics of synodality suggests here, both for ecclesiology uh, in the constructive sense and for lived Catholicism, which some of you will know is a, a stream of, of research in the, um, in the centre as well. So what new structures might be developed in England and Wales um, for enabling co-responsible synodality, integrating the pastoral and doctrinal elements of tradition? I'm impressed here by the proposal in Latin America, in CELAM, uh, responding to synodality for full interlocking centres of knowledge management, basic ecclesial community training, pastoral action, and communications, with communications being the centre that oversees the others and makes them work efficiently together. Secondly, how do we find new ways to deal with dissensus as well as consensus? In line with Francis's view that 
Our main task is not to disengage from polarisation, but to engage with conflict and disagreement in ways which prevent us descending into polarisation, holding disagreement and allowing it to become a link in a new process, what Francis calls overflow. Now, it's maybe just worth noting briefly that Judith Gruber argues in a good paper that dissensus is not only a legitimate element of ecclesiogenesis, but a vital one. Finally, and closer to home, um, maybe there's space for some research in the, the use of technology. We had a fascinating paper earlier today about computers. Uh, in the use of technology, particularly in the post-COVID world, in regard to realising these communicative dimensions of synodality, in contrast to the near-total lack of transparency in the 2014 Synod regarding the questionnaires, uh, what was submitted and what were the regional and country-level syntheses, this time there's a widespread dissemination, often from the grassroots, with not only diocesan syntheses being put up and posted ahead of the continental phase of the Synod, but even parish um, inputs are being put up on the web to be, to be viewed. And it's kind of a really interesting thing whether the technology has disrupted this synodal process in a way that even eight years ago just wasn't happening. Are we seeing here an example of what some rewild, rewilding models propose? That if the megafauna are once again part of the ecosystem, the small stuff will generally look after itself. The final section then. In addition to having the right ecclesial structures and subjects, synodality requires suitable environments for flourishing. And in the final part of this talk, I just want to offer some very brief points on this using the um, ecological concept of ecospaces rather than habitats. So we put up here the, the concept of a habitat, which we're probably familiar with focuses on the needs of the organism. What does it need right now? It's focused on survival, maintenance in church terms. Whereas ecospace focuses on the conditions and resources that enable organisms to develop. So it's focused on formation. Um, you could also say that ecospace, the, the notion of habitat, is generally focused on stopping something becoming extinct. Whereas the notion of ecospace is about it flourishing. So I'm going to make three brief comments. Um, firstly, we start thinking in terms of habitats and, and ecospaces. We introduce the concept of place. And the notion of place introduces an important development in the people of God ecclesiology under Francis, which is relevant to synodality. When Pope Francis talks of the people, he doesn't just mean the whole faithful, the people of God in Vatican II sense but specific cultural instances, the Argentine people, the peoples of the Amazon, and so on. This is not exactly a social scientific term, although a connection with the land and history um, is part of it. Francis says that it represents a, a divining spirit connecting place, history, culture, popular religion. He calls it a mythical category. I don't know if that casts any light on it or not. Really. Um, in the distinctive liberation theology of Argentina, the theology of the people, people are seen as having agency in handing on tradition and values and shaping their future, not defined by an external ideology, whether that's a liberal or a totalitarian one. 
And Francis's work on the, on the uh, value of people you know, is really emphasises this. I think that presents a real challenge for us in the global north when we're adopting a synodality that has grown out of Aparecida and out of uh, Francis's thinking in, in Latin America. What national sense of people do we have that doesn't de degrade into nationalism or nostalgia? We might even ask what ecclesial sense of people we have that doesn't collapse into sectarianism or authoritarianism and yet still reflects reality and not ideals. To view the church as a people in this way means holding the universal and the local in a dynamic tension, not only of place, um, but of time, in the here and now of history, not in a timeless ecclesiological essentialism. As these uh, quotations by uh, two people involved in the synod highlight, it's in the here and now. So practically, might the church look at fresh eyes in this light, for example, with um, patriarchies, okay, with distinguished, distinct liturgical and canonical traditions? Could there be a European patriarchy? Could there be a British patriarchy? Um, you know, what would these things look like if uh, this notion of, of local churches that respond not just to the canonical forms, but to the culture of the people is taken seriously? At the other end of the scale, kind of ultra-local diversity, um, there's a notion of the church of churches in a community and ecclesiology, but also within even the local church, within a diocese, a community of communities. I was looking at some of the archives for my, uh, the parish I go to in, in Bladen, in Gateshead, uh, and in the 1960s and 70s, this church... Uh, in, in the area would regularly get 900 plus people on a Sunday morning, which in many churches can tell similar stories. Uh, if it gets 70 now, it's doing well. And that's a church that is reasonably thriving. It's lively, there's stuff going on, there's good people involved in it. Sharing a priest with other parishes, um, but maintaining a very strong local identity about being the church in that place. So returning to the idea of ecclesiogenesis, maybe there's a, another provocation here for us to start thinking about parishes as base ecclesial communities, not how do we create base ecclesial communities beneath the parishes and feed into them. But by the time you've got down to 50 or 60 people maintaining a presence in a place, that is a base ecclesial community. What would that do in response? respect of thinking about organisation and diocese, formation, contributions to ecclesial um, synodality. Now, before we go too far down that path, ecology offers an interesting pastoral warning here. Uh, when large predators are absent, meso-predators become super-predators and cause significant reduction in small species with cascading effects. I've actually seen uh, a number of parishes where uh, really interesting experiments in lay-led parishes have been done, and within a year, the lay leader of that parish is more clericalised than, than, than most cardinals. It's a real problem in these kind of small places. I mean, more, at a more serious level, in, um, in the 1990s in the, in the Church of England, 
the, um, the nine o'clock service in, in Sheffield, I don't know if any of you remember this, you know, was a service that progressively controls were removed because it was doing so well and it was an encouraging, it's an experimental mission thing, it doesn't have to go through all of the controls, checks and balances we normally put in. It resulted in abuse of power and a closing down and a real traumatic experience. This idea that if you take the, the big predators at the top of the food chain away, it won't necessarily devolve to a land of gentle herbivores. In other words, the authority and the power of the bishops and clergy, including particularly the Bishop of Rome, has a really positive role to play here, and we need to think about that. Synodal governance structures and mentalities might need to be established, tested and matured for some time before certain types of control can be relinquished prudently. In Evangelic Gaudium, Francis says he's aware of the need for a healthy decentralisation. Now, you can read that two ways. It would be a healthy thing for the church to decentralise lots of things. But you can also read it as we should decentralise in a healthy way. In all of this, the local needs to be held in balance, not so much, I think, with an abstract universal as with the diverse totality of local churches. The whole is more important than the part. It's easy in a global north context to focus on synodality as an opportunity to hear the voices of laity, women, youth, uh, LGBT issues, and raise deeply felt concerns and hopes which are all authentic. And, and you know, I don't want to um, put those down. But to forget that synodality around the world will look different, with different issues, different learnings. Um, to borrow an idea from uh, ecumenism, um, it's not just about learning about other churches, but also learning from them, particularly the Latin Americans might fit here. You might see this as a kind of receptive ecumenism ad intra. Secondly, uh, the conditions and the resources for eco-space, a flourishing synodal church, require more than synods and processes, even if they're local here and now processes. Um, thinking about these eco-spaces suggests the third of the ITC's three levels of synodality, what it calls synodal style. Synodality according to the Vatican website, must become the church's modus vivendi et operandi. It is, as Luciano says, not a method, but an ecclesial way of proceeding, which requires us uh, reconceiving and not merely modifying the forms by which church structures and mentalities can be effectively synodalised. And how we manage to find even a new neologism there, so synodalise something. Um, I, extend, I, I agree with what he's saying here, but I would extend that last point. It's not just mentalities, intellectual, but intellectual and dispositional virtues that need to be developed, such as those listed as synodal attitudes in the preparatory documents for the current synod. Just to cite some of the ones that are listed in the Vatican's material. Courage, honesty, charity, humility, openness, hope, inclusivity, and the building of community. According to final point in this, this section, and I'll make a few concluding remarks, according to ecological practitioners, um, rewilding needs slow thinking. It's the Catholic Church, and I really mean the concrete ecclesial subjects of the church here, able to deal with a slow synodality. Francis's project has been described as having a horizon not of years, but centuries, perhaps even millennia. It makes 
There's an article that makes great play of the fact that he says what God requires of the church in the third millennium is a synodality. Um, Carl Honore's 2005 book, In Praise of Slowness, distinguishes between two fundamental styles. Fast, they're busy, controlling, aggressive, hurried, analytical, stressed, superficial, and so on. And slow, calm, receptive, intuitive. As an Anglican ecclesiologist, uh, Stephen Pickard, draws on this, this work of an aura uh, to propose an emergent church, a church in ecclesiogenesis, although he doesn't uh, develop in quite the same way. What he proposes is a slow church coming, that's the phrase he uses, a slow church coming. Quote, slow church, like the slow food movement, local, fresh, organic. As Francis says in uh, Letters Dream, we've got at the bottom there, um, synodality is a patient process. It doesn't come easily. We need to discern in the midst of conflict, pitch camp together, and sometimes just wait for the skies to clear. <coughs> and finally, um, this really is a fine point in this one, um, and this is an area which I think demands a conference in its own right, so I was delighted to hear Paul mention that next year we'll have... Uh, Cardinal Grech and, uh, and Sister Natalie coming. What are the implications of synodality for ecumenism? I'm not thinking so much here about interchurch synodality, you know, how do Catholic bishops work with Orthodox um, patriarchs, but what are the implications of a synodal church? And if you read the documents, and it's easy to miss this because it's such a, a phrase we've come to learn, is a church of all the baptized, not all the confirmed Catholics, all the baptized. This, this sort of the, the ecclesiology of ecumenism, let's see, from Vatican II onwards, of the primary primacy of baptism, suddenly has a real practical uh, uh, application here. So what eco-space is needed for ecumenism to flourish as a constitutive part of a synodal ecclesiogenesis, not as an add-on for enthusiasts? At a local level, what possible synodal, uh, specific receptive ecumenical learning might be possible um, regarding being a local church. So not just the obvious targets of learning from the Church of England about how to run general synod, but what does it mean to be the church in England? Is the stuff that the Catholic Church in England and Wales needs to learn from the Church of England in that regard? With integrity. And what pastoral, doctrinal and decision-making roles for the ecumenical other are needed in an emergent, inverted, non-pyramidal church? To return to the rewilding analogy, how are the trophic webs of clergy and laity, local and universal, further complexified by ecumenical sister churches and ecclesial communities? Here again, I feel we're being asked for a new reception of Vatican II. To conclude... In describing Francis's synodal approach as disruptive in the subtitle for this talk, I initially had in mind not so much Levin Berver's use of the term or the disruptive innovation which Forbes magazine used to characterise Francis's style in the first years, although these are both very relevant, uh, as is the simple everyday sense of disruption as making a mess, which anyone with children will recognise. Rather, it was the image of breaking ground, 
turning over the soil ready for planting. But synodality also includes the sowing of seeds, not just disruptive digging and ongoing tending to the seedlings. The 2023 synod is a beginning, not an end. It's not what ecclesiologists call passive rewilding, simply letting nature take its course. It's more trophic rewilding, uh, attending to the entire ecosystem and the ecological engineer species that shape it. And occasionally, it resembles translocation rewilding, where something is brought in from another ecosystem uh, to replicate effects that, that are no longer possible in, the, in this, the base ecosystem. I think here of the Latin American church, um, what Methel Ferrier calls the source church time of its life, whose influence on the universal church from a Parasida to Francis is now becoming apparent, a southerly wind, as Walter Casper called it. Rewilding projects often meet opposition from farmers, conservationists, who do a different style, politicians and the public. Synodality is no different. But experience has shown rewilders the need to think about narrative. In particular, the fact that many people respond to stories rather than bare facts. And rewilders are telling stories, quote, that are fresh, empowering and hopeful, which sit alongside the familiar tales of species lost and habitats destroyed. Like John XXIII's repost to the prophets of doom at the start of the Second Vatican Council, might the implementation of synodality learn something here? In contrast to the established assumption that if people knew the facts, they would act wisely, a recent rewilding project in Scotland uh, made the observation that, quote, narrative doesn't tell people what to needs to be done. Rather, it invites them to engage with new ways of thinking and collectively formulate new ways of doing. Pope Francis's disruptive synodality seems to be doing just that in the church today. And so to borrow a line from Gerard Manley Hopkins, long live the weeds and the wilderness yet. Thank you.